This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Monday, September 25th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Senator Bob Menendez has been indicted again. He beat charges that he accepted gifts from a Florida ophthalmologist. It's actually a mistrial. Now it's an Egyptian businessman. And it seems like the senator did a brisk businessman. The favors, now the evidence, were described by federal prosecutor Damian Williams. They discovered approximately $500,000 of cash stuffed into envelopes and closets. Some of the cash was stuffed in the senator's jacket pockets. Some of the cash, some of the envelopes of cash contained Davy's fingerprints or Davy's DNA. That's not all. Agents also discovered a lot of gold. A lot of gold, or really three gold bars. It's hard to get around the detail of the gold bars. The cash, the envelopes, that's one thing, but gold bars say so much. Menendez in a press conference today announced that yes, he had envelopes full of cash. It was personal savings. He likes to have a lot of cash on hand because in 1953, the Cuban government was overthrown and he who was born in the U.S. in 1954 never forgot. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now, this may seem old-fashioned. Yeah, old-fashioned. Who doesn't have family stories of all the gold bars they fled the motherland with and coming to our shores with only the clothes on their back and the gold bars? Menendez also said he's being targeted because he is Latino and his support of Egypt is independent of any gifts, including gold bars. If convicted... The senator faces years in prison behind, I suppose, steel bars. The governor of New Jersey and the majority of the New Jersey congressional delegation has called for his resignation, which he said today would not be forthcoming. On the show today, an outlier poll causes concerns for Joe Biden's presidential re-election chances, but it's the accurate polls he should really be worrying about. But first, how I won a Nobel Prize is an idea novel. And the idea is embodied in the setting, RIP, or the Rubin Institute Plymouth, a billionaire-funded think tank on an island off Connecticut that welcomes, quote, cancelees and deplorables. The only rule is unabated genius be allowed to flourish or maybe fester and metastasize. The heroine is a young physicist, Helen, who follows her genius mentor there because the work is just so important. In the end, At least someone wins a Nobel Prize. That is the promise of the novel's title. But is it for physics, literature, social commentary, 
I won't reveal, but I will talk to author Julius Toronto up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. How I won a Nobel Prize, well, kind of gives away the ending, but it doesn't matter because it's the ride that's hysterical and insightful and gripping. We join Helen, a brilliant researcher whose mentor, the Nobel Prize winning Perry, has gotten into a little trouble, kissed a guy in his lab, the guy wound up not liking it, and so now they must, as people do in Julius Toronto's new book, now they must off to the Rubin Institute Plymouth, which takes on all comers. There are almost no rules there, certainly no sexual harassment rules. Many Nobel Prize winners have been assembled. Many top leaders in their field in finance, a senator who did blackface in college, and other luminaries have gone off the coast of Connecticut to research, to convene, to talk to each other away from the grasp of wokeism or political correctness. Helen's in a bind. Her husband, Hugh, does not want to go. He does not believe in these people, but Perry is uniquely brilliant, and Helen feels she must because high temperature superconductivity is in the offing. Julius Toronto wrote this exciting new book, this exciting new novel, and joins me now. Hello, Julius. How are you? Hi, Mike. Are you a science guy? A sciencey guy? Uh, I have an admiration of science. I'm not a sciencey guy myself. So when you write phrases like, I realized that Perry had completely botched our representation of Cooper Pairing in a doped Mott insulator. Does that just freely flow from the pen or did you have to research that particular phraseology to make it sound good? Oh, I I had to do quite a bit of research for this book and I was helped by a uh, casually, extremely brilliant physicist friend where I would read up on some aspect of the physics problems that my narrator is dealing with. And I would call him and I would say, is this about right? And he would say, not remotely. And then he would explain it to me as I could understand. (laughs) And some phrases that appear in the book are really just, I took notes while he was talking to me. And then I knew that that was going to be a competent sounding way to describe a physicist's work. So the themes of this book are manifold, but the hard sciences are one and sociology is another one. I would assume that you were just who you are and how you think about the world. You were more gripped by what's going on in our culture, but you had to tell that story set against something real, something maybe theoretically real, but like the hard sciences. Why does this problem in physics, why was that the way in for you to illustrate all the things that you wanted to comment on and set your story against that's going on in our culture? Well, I I really like that division that you're making. I I wanted to have my narrator be a hard scientist, a physicist, in part because there just is a different and sort of more concrete system of value for the hard sciences, where when people discover something new in physics, it's falsifiable, it's testable. And then if you get it right, 
it kind of becomes a new pebble of human knowledge that will last um, for a very long time, if not forever. So I like that there were going to be multiple systems of values competing with each other and having her work on something like high temperature superconductivity seemed like the right move in part because it's both a real and very difficult problem of basic science and something that if solved could i mean change our world enormously so it has both a hard intellectual component and a large practical impact right so i i would assume you're you work in the humanities you're a man of letters you think about these things not as a scientist and then you were for all the reasons you said science would illustrate what's going on societally which is canceling and people feeling unmoored and people of great reputation having their past uh thrown in their face was there something about the science of it and it becomes clear that this is something gra- grappled with by the characters in your book. But did you know going in, ah, if I have this all playing out in the consciousness of someone who's doing hard science, I can somewhat take to a step removed from these other considerations. I mean, she talks about this, but my question is going in where you're like, the great thing about having the stakes be, do we invent superconductivity is you have the ability to say, can't we just all forget about the sins of the past because we're talking about the future? Whereas if your main character was, I don't know, a historian of the 19th century, that would be a much different conversation for that person to have. That's exactly right. I I wanted the narrator, and actually, I think the only way to come at this story through a novel and come at these issues through a novel, or at least one that I could write, was to have the narrator be someone who is not sort of on the battlefield already, or doesn't think she's on the battlefield in the culture wars. Um, that allows her to be sort of a canary in the mine and to hear you know, wildly different perspectives coming from people on different sides of her. And it it would be a very different type of book if someone was going to this island who already has kind of their their politics as a major animating force in their own life. Mm -hmm. So tell me how you conceived of the island of RIP and what rules, I mean, you invent a billionaire who funds it, but he's going to set the island up according to certain rules. How did you decide what were the rules for the island that would work best for your novel, either be most realistic or create the most tension that you were after? Uh, I mean, in part, the world did a lot of that work for me because we we really do see this debate and these figures emerging um, in the world where they you know, people write a lot about what they want on both sides uh, in terms of how they want schools to function, what they think is most important, what they want to focus on. So the world of the book has kind of an absurdist element. It's you know our, our world, but 30% more intense in basically every way. And that, that meant that, okay, you know, someone, there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction. Someone kind of of a libertarian bent is going to try to create their own society like this, try to influence the world in some way. But because I'm writing fiction, I get to make it a little funnier and a little crazier than what we're seeing, at least in real time. So Buckminster Witherspoon Rubin, 
uh, sets up his island and what can go on, what can't go on. What are his rules? Uh, The rules he sets up for the island are pretty clear. It's do your work. And if you do it well, we don't care at all about your personal behavior. That we're just not going to get involved if you know if you run afoul of the laws of the police, that's your problem. But we're not going to um, we're not going to get involved in interactions between adults. Is how he says it at one point in the book. Yeah, and I remember when Elon took over Twitter. That was essentially his when they asked him, "Well, what rules would you have?" He said, "Just the laws, just the laws of the United States." That's an echo of that sentiment. I guess it's not just Elon. You know, I guess a libertarian would say that. Yeah, I mean one. A uh, strange and delightful thing about having written this book a couple of years ago is the extent to which little pieces of it keep coming true um, and seeing things that I put in the book and thought, ah, this is a little bit exaggerated. Well, you know, it just turned out it was exaggerated three years ago and now it's just what people are doing. Right, right. So some things that had happened, the uh, Unite the Right rally in Virginia, um, a right-wing extremist drove through it, killed people. You have a parallel event in your book. The means of the cancellations that drive some of these people to the islands, those have echoes in the real life. I don't think uh, Senator Metzger was an actual senator who did blackface, but of course there were many a politician uh, who has. What is your feeling about what Helen was arguing? I mean, sometimes an author puts arguments in the mouth of his characters because he believes, doesn't believe, or really wants to test it out. So Helen was arguing, she's the physicist, she's there just to do physics. And she's saying, I just don't, I just want to be apart from politics. So many people say this, like whatever you guys are doing with politics, that's fine. I'm doing my physics. Can't just leave me alone to do my physics. It's actually more important. And another character in the book said, well, that would be fine if you were living under tyranny. Do you agree with that character, Leopold Lenz? Well, I, I, I think the, the characters in my book, at least, I see them all as being both a little bit right and a little bit wrong pretty much all the time. And people take their arguments too far. They take their preferences too far. Uh, I, I really identify with kind of both sides of that moment where as a writer, as a novelist, sometimes all you want is a little peace and quiet to work on your own little stories that are much, much less important than the work that Helen is doing in the book. But still, it's important to you as the novelist. And at the same time, you cannot help living in the world. You cannot help kind of needing to participate in your society and try to be a responsible citizen. And that's sort of the Leopold Lenz side of the argument of like, sorry, it's not, you don't get to close yourself off. You're responsible to other people and you're helping to build the society you're living in. Right. That's one part of his argument, but he literally talks about tyranny at a point. Yeah. I I mean, I, I think the... Certain political conditions do make it, you know, could just make it futile to be politically engaged. Right, right, right. So he's saying, okay, you don't want politics. I'll tell you who doesn't have politics. People who are oppressed, people who live in autocracies. But then again, we had a normal kind of politics in our democratic nation. It wasn't perfectly democratic and it wasn't perfectly normal, but you wouldn't have written this book in the 1950s through 2010s, I don't think. It hadn't come to a head where this sort of island would make sense to readers. I, I mean, I uh, I think the types of political crises that we are 
going through now, they it's like all history. It does and it doesn't have historical precedents. You know, we've gone through harder problems as a country than the ones we're going through now. We had a had a civil war, right? Yeah, yeah. One half of the country really, I mean, was at war with the other half. Um, so the historical context, I think, is a little, um, it, it's it's very specific to the time we're living in now in terms of the particulars, but scandal and division and deep disputes of values mm-hmm. between different parts of the country and different constituencies, that's as old as the nation. You know, the, the Scarlet Letter is, you know, in a certain sense, a letter, uh, a novel about scandal and someone who strays from the sexual mores of her society. So in a, in a certain way, this is a very old story. Right. So one character we haven't talked about is Hugh, who is Helen's husband, and he was dragged along to this island. And it seems to me he had a lot of choices. He, he's opposed to the entire project and he thinks these people are disgusting. The Hugh character could have been the kind of person who says, you know, there's no such, th- you're just exaggerating wokeism. There's no such thing as wokeism. Or I just interviewed a guy who wrote a book called Cancel Culture is Good. He could have been one of these people. But in fact, he was a person who himself was racked with neuroses saying, did I do something wrong? Have I ever done something wrong? Will one day the things I thought were right be wrong? He was unmoored, you know, in general. Tell me about the kind, when you were thinking about the Hugh character, what were your considerations in terms of uh, the kind of person he'd be, his mindset and his actions? I, I wanted him to be three-dimensional in the sense of inhabiting a version of his political perspective that involves some stuff that I hope will not be so familiar to readers of the newspaper and Twitter and getting to some of these human elements of living in a society that's changing, worrying about whether your own ethics are right, whether the, the way you've seen the world is right, and engaging seriously with that. Um, I, I think there it would have been pretty easy to write sort of a hack version of that character of someone who just says what you know you can read online a lot of the time and goes no further. But he has a number of important moments, one of which is that um, that scene that you're referring to where he talks about how unmoored he's feeling. And at that point, he's sort of in the process of becoming more progressive and kind of woker, to use the, the phrase of the day. Um, and that's in the past. And then the present of the novel, he's done with his conversion. He has really bought into um, a pretty progressive social vision. And it's getting more progressive all the time. But he still has these moments of kind of winning arguments um, with Helen, who's pushing back and just wants to be left alone and doesn't want to deal with the sense of social duty that he's always trying to impose on her. I know participants in the debate and in the book talk about the culture war and they have different points of view. Some say it really is a culture war. The uh, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, they know it's a war. We on the other side have to think of it as a war. Whereas other people who certainly hate the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers say that's basically a conceit and let's not buy into their narrative. What do you, Julius Toronto, think? I, I think I'll dodge the question, but I hope for an interesting reason. One of the things that 
surprised me, but I think turned out to be very important for approaching this subject as a novelist is the extent to which I had to withhold judgment from my characters and the, you know, many of the positions that they were articulating. And I think that's because novels turn out not to be great tools for kind of making or winning an argument. Um, They're much better at getting at the truths that unite us. Um, And one of the truths that I will commit to is that I think basically none of us at at any position in the culture is really immune to being um, made fun of. And at the same time, all of us at any position in the culture have a humanity that really deserves to be acknowledged. So the kind of whether I'm going to endorse one argument in the book or another, um, I think part of the reason that they're in the mouths of characters is that I don't have a lot of certainty about it. Did you change your mind as you were writing the book? I think I learned things. I, as I inhabited different points of view, I, I hope that I actually got a little bit deeper in some of those points of view than I would have if I hadn't tried to write it. And I hope I'll give some of that to readers. At one point, you write, you learn after a while not to overcommit to each new insight. You do not immediately change the entire structure of your model. Do you think we've been doing that too much as a society? We get an idea, and man, do we commit to that idea. I, I, that's, that's the central problem of progress, I think, that you, you, you have these countervailing forces of someone gets a new idea and thinks it's really good and you can go too far. And other times there's a really good idea that it takes the world forever to get to. And in, in our history, we've seen, um, we've seen a fair amount of both. How I won a Nobel Prize. I won't give away the ending. Okay, I will. She wins a Nobel Prize. Julius Toronto is the author. It's uh, a great new novel that's getting a lot of attention from me just now and you, I hope. Julius, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Mike. And now the spiel. An ABC News poll showing Donald Trump beating Joe Biden by 10 points in a hypothetical matchup that isn't that hypothetical caused quite a kerfuffle, a heck of a lot of hullabaloo, and lost among the hubbub, the brouhaha. Here's ABC political director Rick Klein laying it out. Given the other frustration we've seen, we know in this poll there's some uh, some quirks, some oddities around the number of black voters and Hispanic voters, the the younger voters who seem to be supporting Donald Trump. And get this, because it's pretty hard to believe, but... We asked people whether Donald Trump should be constitutionally uh, disqualified for running for office. And among people who said yes, one in five, about 18 percent, say they'd vote for Trump anyway. So that might just be sending a message that's more anti-Biden than it is pro-Trump. But regardless, the the weaknesses that we are seeing uh, for Joe Biden and his approval rating across the board are very real. They are alarming to Democrats, even if no one thinks this is ultimately going to be a nine-point race. It can't be. Why even report such an outlier for shame, ABC for shame? These arguments were made. And I agree, there's no way that if the election were held today that the polling places wouldn't be like, what, there's an election today? And that Jewish people wouldn't be like, on Yom Kippur, Ashanda. But also that Donald Trump would win by 10 points, impossible. He'd only win by one or maybe, and this really does shame ABC, he'd lose by a point, but still win the presidency. So ABC has egg on their face, but the entire 
political commentariat has oatmeal in their ears. Think of it this way. If five years ago I said, you know, there's a virus emanating from China that's going to kill five million Americans, looking back, would you say, that guy got it all wrong? What a maniac. Or would you say, all right, it's only been like 1.1, 1.2 million, but he was kind of right. What was he doing with the pangolins? Joe Biden makes Democratic voters deeply uneasy and undecided voters practically despairing. We know this. Let's not debate the fairness of the feeling that is out there. And also, if you're being fair, figure your scoring of the merits of the question. Is Joe Biden too old and decrepit? Your scoring will be largely influenced by your own investment in the Biden agenda. Because there's no one who's like, you know, I really hate the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act and also the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson, because I'd rather have a seventh anti-abortion vote on the court. That's all true. But you know, I got to admit, Joe Biden still got it. No, to believe Joe Biden is sentient and acute enough to do the job is to largely believe his agenda and accomplishments are even better than his presentation. If I'm honest, I'm probably in this camp. But I also try to see what everyone outside this camp sees. It's that Biden is too old and too tired, too frequently, doddering, more prone to gaffes than he's ever been, and vulnerable. Yes, vulnerable to losing to the multi-indicted, insurrection-inspiring, lying huckster con man. He is, he really is vulnerable. Oh, but he'll be going to Detroit and shuffling the picket line with UAW workers. That's never happened before, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's description. President Biden showing up to the picket line on Tuesday is a historic, historic event. We have never seen in modern history a president show up to a picket line like this. That's true. Like I said, it's never happened before. It's never happened before. It's never happened before. Historic, historic. Uh, and an 84-year-old president or a quadrice-indicted former president. That hasn't happened before either. You know, it doesn't seem like the unprecedented or the historic is going to be punished or rewarded very much in 2023 and 2024 America. If you still believe Biden would beat Trump, and I guess I do, let's play a little game. What's the moment where minds change, right? Where minds change not from the ABC poll, but from all the other polls that show one point race, no point race. How are minds going to change about Trump? Can Donald Trump say anything remotely as outrageous as what he's already said? We had a trial run of that. There were headlines about his disgust at being in the presence of a disabled veteran. Mark Milley reported that out, or at least leaked that out. Then Donald Trump truthed about, broadly speaking, Milley's eligibility for the death penalty. Did any of that change anyone's mind? Did you even know Trump truthed it out? Ah, nothing he can say or do, I don't think, will make more of an impact than the indictments, the actions that led to the indictments, and all the other outrageous comments that are not going to sink him. The very comments that, by the way, propel him to the top of the Republican field as an unapologetic fighters for their values, or at least against the other side's values. Can a Republican opponent trip up Trump in the debate? That's the theme that Chris Christie and other Republicans who will be debating Wednesday have been hitting on Meet the Press. Christie tried to goad Trump via descriptions that I don't even think Trump would object to. It is, it is unfortunate um, and selfish that Donald Trump's not going to be there. So if another Republican 
is going to say something or do something that stops Trump. If that's your hope, I think it's a small hope. Does Trump have any further depths of character, the revelation of which will cost him the nomination? I don't think so. Therefore, you got to say, any movement that will come to break this nothing-nothing tie, deadlocked, one point here, one point there, Trump with a little bit of an electoral college advantage. So any movement that's going to come is going to come from the Democratic side, that Joe Biden will either reassure voters or dissuade voters with his words or actions. Do you think Bidenomics is going to catch steam and favor in a way it hasn't? I doubt it. Will Ukraine win the war or the immigration crisis greatly abate? I also doubt it. Or will there be some statements or moments where voters say, yeah, Biden, great point. He's not so bad. Or is it more likely they'll say, Biden, what did he say? That really does trouble me. Which is more likely? You know, Biden does have his good moments. You just don't hear about him all the time. He did a Fareed Zakaria CNN interview just a couple weeks ago. And it didn't sound like Churchill saying that we'd meet him on the beaches, but he was lucid and convincing and in command. But then he said his son died fighting overseas and that he was at ground zero after 9-11 and that a 1.5 degree rise in temperatures is worse than nuclear annihilation. There are dozens or so uh, other so-called gaffes, but I'm just taking the ones that are untruthful, that are not true. And if we count accuracy as a virtue and see inaccuracy as a demerits, should hurt them and not just by operatives out to get them. Is it more likely that Joe Biden in the upcoming campaign, changes people, him, him doing something, changes people's minds towards him or away from him. And remember, we are conducting this experiment, this campaign, in the real world, the imperfect real world, where the election will be run via our real imperfect media with all the amplification tools of the right and distortion fields of online. Look, Last time around, Joe Biden actually did exceed expectations. Let us not forget that. He had a great convention speech. He outdebated Trump. If you want to call being relatively normal as Trump tried to bull rush the proceedings, outdebated him. But remember this one? Vote now. Make sure you, in fact, let people know you're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question because because the question is the question is the question left. Will you shut up, man? Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so right. Gentlemen, is, I think this we've is ended so this. Unprecedented. He's going to pack the court. We're not going to give a list. Have, that one moment resonated with voters. Will he have another one of those? Has four years of governing left Biden in better stead to come across as on top of things and relatable? Or has the strain and time itself made it more likely he'll disappoint? Anyway, that is what I'm worried about. That's what Democrats who are polled are worried about. That's what political insiders, if you talk to any of them off the record, they're all worried about it, unless they want Biden to lose. And that's what the official Democratic Party establishment says is not a worry or not worth the cost of addressing. They've obviously made the calculation that something will happen to assuage voters' worries about Joe Biden more than it will exacerbate people who are already worried. Or maybe they think that the first part of my thought experiment was wrong. They think that Donald Trump really can do or say something that will turn more people off in the one year and one month until voting, early voting begins in many states. I understand to some extent, no, 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 Donald Trump's still Donald Trump. He's still going to be repulsive to more Americans than not on election day. In the midterms, regular voters turned away almost all election deniers, and Donald Trump's the leader of the 2020 election was stolen faction. He's it. Voters favor legal abortions. The Democrats have a big advantage there. 
But the theory has not been tested in a presidential race. It's not been tested for this presidential race. And it seems something bordering on political malpractice to go to war with such a tenuous plan. So no, ABC, you're out of bounds. You got your sampling wrong. Maybe you should have spiked that outlier poll. But we live in a bit of an outlier time in something of an outlier society. And even though in 2020 we voted out the liar, it doesn't mean we'll do so this time. That's it for today's show. Today, more than most, Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist. Senior producer Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Do Peru, G Peru, Do Peru. And thanks for listening.